And we'll jump into our uh, time of studying from uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. Uh, if you need a note sheet, too, there are still some on the chairs here. There's a couple on the back table there as well. So feel free to um, grab some note sheets if you still need those as well. Okay. You should hopefully be there by now. Mark chapter 10. We're going to be picking up in verse 32, so go ahead and stand. We're going to read that together. Down through verse 45, and then next week we'll wrap up our study of Mark 10 and have a little bit of a break. Starting verse 32. And they, that being Jesus and the disciples, were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not for me to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You can go ahead and have a seat. Let's pray. And then trust our time to the Lord now. Our good and gracious Father, we come once again before this gospel today, knowing that, Lord, it shows us the way of life. It shows us the way that you have called us to live and to walk. And for many of us, that is difficult. It presents challenges. It presents questions. It presents barriers, maybe, that we're not willing at this time to cross. And so... We pray that this morning you would help remind us of the high calling to follow Jesus, to see it in all of its manifestations, to see it as good and right and appropriate, but also to see it, Lord, in its appropriate standing, that it is a high calling, um, but Lord, one that is filled with such, such glory as well. So we need your help this morning. I need your help. So please uh, help me this morning to make this clear for our students in a way that would be most helpful for, for them in this stage of their lives. I would ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, for many parents, there is a desire and a lack of desire in many ways for uh, their children to become like them. In many ways, I think for us as, as parents, uh, there's ways that we hope that our kids turn out very different from us. Maybe it's uh, some of our personality traits, maybe it's some of our, our flaws and our uh, demeanor. Uh, but I would say for the most part, a lot of times there are ways that parents desire for their kids to be like them or to follow, we could say, in their steps. Perhaps it's with a uh, particular job. We've really enjoyed our job so much in life that we hope maybe that our kids would catch the vision for it. Maybe you felt that from your parents before, that they love their job so much that they have brought you into that in many ways, and they would love to see you follow in their same steps. Uh, perhaps it might be some type of uh, hobby. Perhaps it's a, an instrument or a, a sport that they greatly enjoy and they're passionate about. And they want to see that cultivated in you because they know how exciting and joyful it was for them. What we're, what we're talking about here is really at the heart of what Jesus has for his disciples in this passage as well as the as the good teacher as the rabbi as the one who is calling these followers to forsake their old ways of life to follow him into uh really this scary unknown in many ways although he's made it known to them what to expect uh what he is calling them to do in many ways is to follow in his steps and really uh, that is at the heart of what discipleship actually is as a Christian. It's a very fancy word that we use a lot for those who follow Jesus to be a disciple or to uh, be engaged in discipleship. But really, that's what Mark is going to lay out for us again here is we're kind of building in this section uh, of this gospel about the nature of discipleship. And I think what we see at play here in this particular passage this morning is that discipleship is all about following in the steps of Jesus. It's to walk where Jesus walks. It's to expect the things that Jesus expects. It's to uh, accept Jesus and his identity uh, as he himself has embraced who he is and what he has set apart to do as well. Really, in many ways, the last several weeks have been building up to this particular point, right? We've, we've been talking a lot about the, the sacrificial nature of what it is to follow Jesus and how that manifests itself in all kinds of areas of life. We talked a few weeks ago about how that has a high uh, standard on uh, marriage, right? That, that in order for... Uh, Marriage to work the way that God intended it to, to be, it requires self-sacrifice. It requires uh, really uh, laying down your good for the eternal good of others. Uh, we talked about it last week. Pastor Summers was here. We talked about the implications it has on the way that we embrace the, the weakest and the most vulnerable in our society. Children, right? Like uh, seeking to serve even the lowest, not just those who are the highest and can get us ahead in life. Uh, talked about the nature of how it uh, has such a high calling on our finances, right? The rich young ruler who came up to Jesus and thought he had everything he needed to be saved. But Jesus says, hey, if I'm really that valuable to you, then you can forsake your treasures and you can follow me. And the guy says, nope, it's too high. It's too high of a call. 
And Jesus is going to pick up on that now here and really is going to culminate here at the end of this passage with what many consider to be one of the theme verses of Mark's gospel, which we've been building for for the last couple of weeks now, verse 45, where he says, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. So we're going to look at that and all of its manifestations here this morning, but we're going to see these three particular steps uh, that Jesus talks about that are, are necessary in discipleship that we uh, have to walk in. And when I say steps, it doesn't mean like you complete step one, you move on to step two. You complete step two, you move on to step three. It's like, no, these are all steps that happen simultaneously in the Christian life. And these are all things that are happening at the same time together. So step number one in this passage we see in verses 32 to 34 where it means that you must see Jesus for who he really is. You have to see Jesus for who he really is. And I say that because Jesus himself had to come to grips with who he was and what his mission was as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. We pick up in verse 32 with Jesus and his disciples on the road to Jerusalem. Now, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks, but why is he going to Jerusalem? I'm going to ask a couple of questions today, so just be, be ready for it, okay? So, why is he going to Jerusalem? I know you guys know it. It's on the tip of your tongue. Just say it. You know it. Why is he going to Jerusalem? You got it, Lincoln. I can tell you what you're about to say. Why is he going there? It's where he's going to die, right? Like he's on, in many ways, he's on a, a death march in some ways, right? He's going to Jerusalem as his final act, right? His final mission. He is finally... Uh, he's built up over the last couple of years doing his ministry uh, throughout Israel, most of the time in the northern regions. But now he is finally on his the culmination of his mission, which is, as he spells out in the verses here, it is to go to Jerusalem, to be betrayed, to be handed over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, to be crucified and to die and to rise again. But notice something's different about Jesus the closer he gets to Jerusalem. Did you pick up on this? It says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. In verse 32, it says, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now, typically in this culture, if you were a rabbi, uh, a teacher, and you had students, you walked alongside each other. We see Jesus doing that most of the time throughout his ministry. He's walking along with his disciples here. But all of a sudden, we get this picture of Jesus now walking out ahead of them. Like, they can't keep up with them. Uh, perhaps you've been on, like, a family hike before, and you have, like, that sibling who's, like, so excited, and they're, like, out ahead of you. Or you've gone to a theme park, and there's, like, these people you're trying to keep up with in your group. Right? That's the idea here is that they're walking and they're going up to Jerusalem. When I say up, I mean they're going uphill. It's an incline to get to Jerusalem. And these guys are like sweating it out. And here's Jesus like chugging along up ahead of them. There's a unique resolve going on with Jesus the closer they get to Jerusalem. I mean, interesting, especially considering what we just said Jesus is going there to do, Right? Seems unexpected considering he's going to Jerusalem to die. To die. Most of us would be dragging our feet, but here he is 
leading the charge. But as you can see, it's creating more and more separation from the rest of his group. Mark gives us a hint as to why they may be hanging back. It says that they were both amazed, amazed at what Jesus was doing, but what was really holding them back was what? Fear. They were afraid. The weight of the situation is a lot for them to take in, and that's because fear ultimately creates distance. The more we grapple with the high calling and the high cost of discipleship, the more fear is prone to set in and to hinder us in walking with Jesus. After all, as we're going to see this morning, the cost of discipleship is high. It's natural for us to consider what this means for our relationships with our our friends and our peers, our teammates and our, our family members, right? I mean, if we allow fear about what it costs us to follow Jesus to impact these other relationships, we start to be now in the position of, are we going to be controlled by fear and try to uh, soften the cost of discipleship to try to blend in more with our friends and our peers and our family and, and those that we care about here at the expense of what Jesus has actually called us to. If we allow the fear of the what ifs or the fear of pleasing people to set in, then it's inevitable that separation is going to grow between us and Jesus. And perhaps some of you actually feel that right now in your walk with Christ. You recognize that, boy, I, I, I love Jesus, I, I feel like I do, and yet I, I really like being liked by my friends. And you are allowing those things to create a barrier and a, a degree of separation from actually trusting Jesus and following Jesus in all the ways that he has called you to. If we do this, we won't follow Jesus as closely and intimately as he has called us to do. So if we're going to truly walk in the steps of Jesus, then we must see Jesus for who he really is through the eyes of faith. Because faith ultimately moves us forward. It advances us in our walk with Christ. It doesn't create separation. It's at this point in the story in verses 33 to 34 that Jesus uh, sees what is happening here. He sees his disciples kind of hanging back. And he calls time out, and he says, time for a huddle. Huddle. Everybody take a knee, right? Like, let's, let's talk this out here. What encouragement does he have to offer them here? He says to them, verse 33, see, and this is where we get this idea that we have to see Jesus for who he is. He says, see, look, behold, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that being himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. This is going to happen. This is the fate that I have been set apart for. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be crucified. I am going to die. But notice in every single time that he's predicted his death, this is the third time he's done this. Every single time he ends with the measure of hope that says, I will rise. After three days, I will rise. You see, the reason he's doing this is he's trying to point him again back to the nature of faith. Faith is believing the things that we don't often uh, see, but it is trusting. Faith at its very core is trusting what God has said and acting upon it. And it's most simple, basic form. Faith is believing what God says, in this case, what Jesus says, and responding appropriately and accordingly to that. 
And it's with that in mind that we understand that when we live that way, when we live with a trusting attitude and rather than a doubting attitude or an attitude that seeks to please people rather than to please God, we realize that faith is actually what is driving us closer to the Lord, not further away from him. So faith is what actually moves the disciples forward here and what moves us forward in our faith as well. And this all sets the stage for really what the rest of what he's going to talk about here, the uh, important nature of what's going to happen after this. Because obviously, uh, these steps that need to be taken, first of all, obviously it means that you have to see Jesus for who he really is because fear will hinder you versus faith actually pushing you forward. But the second step that's crucially important here is that it means you will suffer on behalf of Jesus. Step two is that it means you will suffer. Discipleship means you will suffer on behalf of Jesus. And this comes to us in verses 35 to 40. Let me ask you this. Is this the third time that Jesus has predicted and shared with his disciples about his impending death, burial, and resurrection? Out of the two times that he's already shared this, how well have they responded the first two times? On a scale of 1 to 10, throw out some numbers, how well have they responded? 10 being like the absolute best. You're allowed to talk to. You don't have to just hold up the numbers. So I see some 2s. I see some 3s. Okay. All right. Some 4s. All right. Yeah. I don't actually have a number for you because there are elements to it where they responded somewhat okay, but the reality is they've responded, for the most part, pretty poorly to this. So let me remind you, the first time, first time Jesus predicted his death and resurrection, what did Peter do? What did Peter do the first time? Did he celebrate? Was he joyful? Saying, well, let's... Get going, Jesus. Let's do it. Right? No. In fact, Peter said, he takes Jesus to the side and gives Jesus a little powwow and saying, listen, Jesus, you don't really know your Bible very good. If you knew what the Bible said, you knew that the Messiah is not supposed to go out like this. In fact, you're supposed to reign. You're supposed to rule. This is not appropriate for you. And Jesus responds to Peter with those ever so affectionate words, get behind me, Satan. Right? This is the attack of Satan that says, I'm going to try to get all the glory, all the fame, all the wonder of the kingdom without all the suffering involved. Not so good. Second time. <laughs> you guys remember how they responded the second time when Jesus predicted that he was going to die and rise again? What happened the second time? Do you remember? They get into an argument. Do you remember what the nature of the argument was? What were they arguing about? Who is the greatest? <laughs> Here's Jesus talking about dying and suffering on their behalf. And they're all caught up in an argument about who's the, who's the greatest amongst them. And if you think the third time is a charm, you'd be sadly mistaken here. Because we see the third time is no better than any of the other times as well. And that's because what we see, especially with James and John in this passage, and actually we see it with the rest of the disciples as well, is that selfish ambition expects rewards. Selfish ambition expects to be rewarded. 
It expects glory. It expects honor. It expects praise. Here you have James and John in verse 35, the sons of Zebedee, also known as what else, by the way? Sons of what? Sons of thunder, right? Intimidation. Sons of thunder coming to Jesus. What are they going to do? Well, they come wanting to stake their claim on the places of honor in the coming glory. When G it says here that they are wanting to sit at Jesus' right hand and his left hand in his glory, they're not talking about in heaven. They're talking about in the eternal kingdom, in this kingdom that Jesus is going to come and establish, which if you listen to anything Jesus has just said up to this point, that's not what Jesus is going to Jerusalem to do. He's not there to incite some type of rebellion or revolt against the Romans. He is there to die. And so it's somewhat insensitive that they're even asking about this, but they still have a wrong perspective of what Jesus is going to do. But they see this as a, a prime opportunity, apparently, to pull Jesus aside and to stake their claim on something that they want, right? They are calling in and they are making their reservations, right? Saying, hey, party of two, we like these seats. We like the best seats in your restaurant, right? Right next to Jesus. One at the right hand and one at the left. Now, notice before they even ask this, <laughs> I heard some of you even laughing, which tells me you understand the nature of this when I read this out loud at the beginning in verse 35 when they approached him and they said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you have ever tried that line on your parents in your house? Mom and Dad, <laughs> we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Tell you what, go home today and try that out and let me know next week how it turns out for you, okay? Actually, don't, don't do that. I don't want that coming back on me. Don't do that, okay? But the point is this. Here you have their rabbi, their master, their teacher, not to mention the one who is claimed to be the son of God, the, the one who is the Messiah, the savior of the Jewish people, and here they are coming up to him and... I thought for a while that maybe the English translations don't maybe translate it very well and that there's maybe something more going on, but that is, that is the nature of the request there. It is basically, uh, we want you to guarantee to us before we even ask you what we're, we're going to ask you. But Jesus, fortunately, because he's God, he's not fooled, but he draws them out with a, a question of his own, right? And he asks them, well, what do you want me to do for you? Right? He, he just responds very simply back to him, what do you want me to do for you? This is fascinating because this is the same question, we'll talk about this next week, but this is the exact same question that Jesus asks blind Bartimaeus in the very next story we're going to look at next week. If you look ahead to Mark chapter 10 here, verses 46 to 52, the last passage of Mark 10, it's the very same question that Jesus asks Bartimaeus, who is blind, what do you want me to do for you? And if you compare and contrast those, it's fascinating the difference between them. Bartimaeus asks for faith. James and John ask for fame. Bartimaeus wants to follow Jesus on the way. James and John want to sit with him in glory. They want the, the, the best seats. They want the right hand and the left hand. They want the best spots in the kingdom right alongside Jesus. Human nature desires the best and thinks to itself, I deserve the best. 
right? There's probably ways that I'm sure I do this, but I see this especially sometimes with our girls. Apparently, I don't know what it is. It seems like we have the exact same two car seats in our vehicle, and yet somehow there's often a race to get to the car ahead of time so that they get the best car seat, which look exactly the same. Drives me nuts. But it shows even from the earliest age, we have an inclination that says, I want the best seat. I want the good one. I deserve it. I need it. One commentator puts it this way with Jesus. It says, Jesus constructs the way of the Lord while the disciples are worried about the order of procession behind him. And this is what selfish ambition does in our lives. It draws out the ugliest parts of our life that say we want to be high. We want to be exalted. We want rewards. We think that following Jesus is all about what we get out of it. Where the reality is, Jesus kind of comes back at him here and saying that, no, 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 understanding what it is to follow me is all about humble submission. And if you humbly submit to my way, this is where you have to understand you have to expect differently. Yes, there's blessing. There is great joy that comes from it. But you also have to expect that there's going to be hardship. There's going to be trials that come. The question he asks back to them in verse 38 He says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which which I am baptized? When he asks this, it might even be kind of rhetorical, almost his way of saying, like, listen, you, you can't. I don't think you know what you're asking. This is not something that you are able to do on your own. But it's kind of weird. He says... He, he, he goes off and he starts talking about this cup and this baptism. I don't know about you guys, but reading that, that sounds maybe a little bit weird, right? Are you able to drink the cup that I am able to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism which, with, with which I am baptized? That's a tongue twister right there. So any idea? What's he talking about here? What's this idea of a cup that he's talking about drinking here, right? Are they talking about stopping and getting some lemon shakeups at Chick-fil-A along the way? Saying, like, no, you can't handle it. It's too good for you. You can't handle it. What do you think? Yeah, throughout Scripture, cup is actually symbolic a lot of times of holding and drinking down something. Uh, and often that is reserved for judgment. And in fact, in the Old Testament, a lot of times the metaphor was of the cup of God's wrath. He's talking about, hey, there's a cup of judgment that I am about to have to drink. I'm about to drink the, the sins of the world. I'm about to have those poured out upon me. In fact, that kind of overflows into that second metaphor he uses there of baptism. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? He's not talking there about this water baptism, right? He was baptized at the beginning of his ministry. That's not the type of baptism he's talking about, is it? No, baptism, again, we've used this uh, in here before. It's often a metaphor uh, for being immersed in something or to be covered by something. And taking with what he just said about the cup of God's wrath, he's talking here about judgment and trial, being immersed and overwhelmed by something. Jesus is making it very clear here. The path forward is not a walk in the park. It's messy. It's costly. He's asking James and John, are you ready for that? Because your, your expectations of what it is to follow me apparently seem out of line right now. But this is what I need you to understand. This is what it's going to look like. And James and John, they respond favorably, though it's 
hard to know how serious. Like, yeah, of course, we can do it. We, we can drink it. We're, we're able to. And Jesus affirms that there is trouble that awaits him. He says, you will drink the cup and you will be baptized. We know from church history that these two men suffer greatly. In fact, James was the first martyr of the Christian church. He was, he was killed. John was not actually executed, but he was exiled. He faced great isolation and loneliness and suffering because of the cause of Christ. Jesus says, I can't promise you co-chairs in the kingdom, but what I can promise you is suffering. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, Jesus didn't just jump when, when John, James and John made the request, Jesus didn't just say, oh, sorry, I can't, I'm not actually the one who makes that decision. I can't grant that to you. Because he says that here, doesn't he? But he doesn't just jump to saying that when James and John ask the question. He draws them out. He draws out the necessity of suffering and what it is to follow him. As one commentator says, just like Peter, they were looking for the crown without the cross, the glory without suffering, the honor without humility. Jesus is here to remind them, hey, if they, if they persecuted me, guess what? They're going to persecute you as well. In fact, Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 4 in his own letter later on to the church, he would say, hey, do not be surprised by this fiery ordeal that's happening among you as if this was something unexpected. Listen, this has always been expected. To, to follow me is going to have to have some level of cost. We might talk about this a little bit later, but... So often in our, our Americanized culture, we think to ourselves that Christianity equals safeness. Or uh, Christianity, it's, it's not wrong to just seek protections. But the reality is Jesus never promised protections. He never promised safety. In fact, I think we've used this phrase before in this church, but I think you know what I mean. Christianity, by its very nature, is not safe. If you're looking for a safe religion or a safe uh, moral system to live by, don't go Christianity. Okay, that's not, that's not the way of Jesus. He never promised that for you. But he does promise that the way to glory is through suffering. There is great joy. There is great happiness that awaits. But there is necessary suffering that is involved along the way. And it's not just about suffering for the name of Jesus or on behalf of Jesus. The third step in this means you are called to serve others just like Jesus himself did. We pick up here in verse 41. And we remind ourselves this is not just a conversation going on with Jesus and James and John. There's other people who are around. And notice in verse 41, when the ten heard it, probably their conversation or heard what they were discussing, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, let me ask you this. As you read that there, what do you think they are indignant about? What do you think is so upsetting to the rest of the disciples about James and John right now? Yeah. Yeah, that James and John think they're better than them? Absolutely. But I think there's even maybe another layer to it. 
Because I think that that's definitely there, but what else do you think they're upset about? After all, the last time this whole conversation came up, they were arguing about which of them was the greatest, right? So do you think at the heart of maybe their indignation is a little bit of an anger, not so much at James and John, but maybe a little bit of an anger at themselves, thinking, why in the world did I not think of that? Why didn't I think about asking Jesus for the greatest seeds? I mean, after all, I'm pretty great too. Why didn't I think about it? And so now they're lashing out at James and John for, oh man, how could you guys ask this? When the reality is they're probably thinking to themselves, oh man, I wish I would have done that. It's a good play. Ah, so angry at them. So what does Jesus do? Once again, calls his second time out of the half, huddles them up. Everybody, take a knee. We got to talk this out again. And he contrasts for them the difference between worldly greatness and true greatness. And listen, student, the difference between the two makes all the difference for Christ's followers. The difference between the two makes all the difference. Because when we look at what it is to have worldly greatness, well, worldly greatness is all about rising up and taking in. It's all about rising up and taking in. Jesus says in verse 42, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. To lord something over somebody is to, to make it known that you're over them, right? It's not just to say, hey, I'm over you, but to like do everything to make it known, like, hey, I'm I'm better than you. I want to remind you of your place in subjection to who I am. He says, this is the way of the world. This is the way the world thinks about leadership. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, I'm not like that. I, I don't desire to, to make people feel bad about those things. No, but if we're honest, a lot of times our ambitions in life are to always advance up. We're always looking for the next opportunity to get the higher position to get the higher grade than other people, to outplay or outperform the other person on our team, not because we desire to just uh, make our team better, but because I in some way want more of the glory. That person's received far more press and publicity or fame or recognition, and I want that. I want that. I want to do whatever I can to get ahead so that I get that recognition. It's no different when you get older, right? Constant ambition to want to climb the corporate ladder, to earn more money, to, to exert yourself as somebody of prestige, of somebody who is known. This is the way of the world, Jesus says. But the way of Jesus is countercultural. It is, as we say a lot around here, it's, it's topsy-turvy kingdom values. Jesus says true greatness is not measured by rising up and taking in. No, in fact, it's very opposite of that. True greatness is about stooping down and pouring out. It's not about how high you can climb, but how low you can stoop. It's not about how much you can take in and earn for yourself. It's about how much you can expend yourself for the good of other people. That's far different from the way of the world. True greatness is this way. In fact, 
It's modeled perfectly in Jesus himself, isn't it? He says in verse 43, it shall, be not, it, it shall not be so among you. In other words, this is not my way. It's not going to be this way in my kingdom. Whoever would be great must be your servant. That's like the, the, the term for like a, a table waiter, right? So we've already used our restaurant illustration here. But to be a, a table server of other people, you're not the person sitting at the table receiving. You're the person dishing it out for other people to enjoy. You're serving them. And whoever would be first among you must be what? Slave of all. And then he uses this language. He says, for even the son of man. And when he says even, that means, listen. Even God's own son. Even he didn't consider himself worthy of these things. Even Jesus did not consider himself worthy of lording his authority over other people. Instead, he came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he demonstrate that? Well, to the ultimate degree. To give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, he came to lay down his life to buy you back. Think about the idea of ransom. We hear about this in crime thrillers, right? Somebody gets kidnapped and there's ransom money at stake. In order for them to be purchased back, they have to do a money drop, right? Give me the million dollars by five o'clock on Friday or else XYZ, right? It's the ransom payment. Jesus says, my very life, my giving of myself was to purchase you back. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I think it's interesting here that Jesus uses the Son of Man title, right? Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Why does he do that? Why does he use the Son of Man title? Well, because Son of Man, when it's referenced especially, this comes from the Old Testament, especially in the book of Daniel, Son of Man is a phrase that depicts glory and majesty and coming to inherit the kingdoms. In other words, it's a, it's a title of honor and authority and ruling. And so you think to yourself, well, surely this guy has come to be served. This is the type of person who has come to receive a kingdom and to be uh, honored and worshipped and glorified, in which he certainly is. But he says, even the Son of Man, coming in his glory, came not by nature, to be served, but to serve. That's, that is countercultural, that Jesus himself will come to serve. To sacrificially give himself for the good of other people. And here we are so often worried about our own advancement. Sinclair Ferguson has a great quote. It says, the way of the disciple is different from the way of the world. In the kingdom of God, true greatness is measured by our service, not by the number of our servants. 
It is seen not in how high up the ladder we have climbed, but how far down the ladder we are prepared to climb for the sake of others. True discipleship has at its heart letting go of our desire for honor in this world in order to bestow honor on others. At the heart of what it is to follow in Jesus' steps is to make others succeed, is to seek the eternal good in other people. Because after all, isn't that what Jesus did for us? He came not to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give himself for the eternal good of others. What does this mean for us this morning as we think about some application points? Well, first of all, you cannot separate the crown of glory from the cross of suffering. We've talked about this before. This is true for what the disciples wanted from Jesus, but it's true for us still today. So often we want a Christianity that's easy one that receives all the blessings with little sacrifice involved. And I'll admit to you, this is the challenge of what it is to be a Christian in America. It just really is. We, We live in a country that is built on rights. It is built on privileges. It is built on, uh, advancement. It is built on so many things that are honestly really hard compared to what Christianity actually is because we unhelpfully at times develop a mindset that says, well, Christianity means comfort. Christianity means safety. Christianity means my best life now, and I'm just going to have Jesus on my life, and it's kind of a a good thing to add to my resume, and it's going to see me through until the end of my life. And the reality is, no, it, it has far deeper implications for who you are. And yeah, it's at times, it's going to be costly. It's not going to be safe. And the sooner we learn to expect that, I think the better our witness in this world is going to be. doesn't mean that there aren't appropriate ways to maybe push back against that and to fight against it. But the reality is if we're hoping on our Christianity being safe in this world, then we're fighting against what Jesus told us it really is. Secondly, we desperately need the mind of Christ. We desperately need the mind of Christ. What do I mean by the mind of Christ? I mean the mindset of Christ. We need the mindset of Christ, which comes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. And really, this is the whole context of Philippians 2, 5 through 8. The passage begins in verses 3 and 4. This is where Paul is saying, let there be no selfish ambition among you, right? No selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather consider others better than yourselves. Well, how in the world do you consider other people more important than yourselves? Have this mind among yourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. That's how you do so. You adopt the mindset of what Jesus did. Well, how did that manifest itself? Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a what? A servant. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled is that word again? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the mind of Christ. A mind that seeks the eternal good of other people by laying down your own preferences and seeking the good in other people. And adopting that mindset of a servant. Thirdly, self-sacrifice is at the heart of following Jesus. And we could talk all day about this. This is really a lot of what we've talked about here. 
that the heart of what it is to be a Christ follower is sacrifice. It is self-sacrifice. It is pouring yourself out for other people. It is costly. In fact, Jesus said for himself, it meant giving his life as a ransom for many. I'm not saying that means that what it means for you is that you need to go out and die for people, right? That's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that you need to lay down your self, lay down your pride, lay down your ambitions, lay down your, your, your selfishness so that other people benefit from it. So that you can seek the good in other people. And really what is at the heart of that here is this final point. As a Christian, you need to embrace the posture of a servant. You need to embrace the posture of a servant. Think about how much different your daily life student would look like if in your household with your mom and your dad and your siblings, you embrace the posture of a servant. Think about how different your your band or your teammates might look if you start to embrace not the posture of the one who desires to be served and get all the attention, but the one who actually seeks to serve them and help make them better. Think about what this looks like in your classroom when you seek the good of other people above your own personal ambitions. This has been, honestly, students, this has been the verse I've been meditating on the most on for the last month and a half. I know that this has been, we've been building steadily to this very point. I've been meditating a lot on what this means. And honestly, I don't know how I've gotten through the last month with uh, the new addition of a baby in our household without this type of mindset. I'm not saying that from the posture of saying, like, look how good I've done. I'm just saying, like, I don't know how I would do that if I wasn't trying to remind myself constantly that I don't exist to try to serve my own agenda. I'm here to serve other people. And that doesn't just include this newborn in our, our family. It means including the girls who already exist in my family, my wife, my my, my church, right? Like my life is not about always seeking my own comforts and what I want. It's about pouring myself out for other people. So ask yourself today, what will, would it look like for me to actually adopt this mindset in all my different spheres of influence for the good of others? I want to end with a quote from Martin Luther King. This is something that I would not usually quote Martin Luther King, just there's some the questionable things there, but there's some things here that I think are true here where he talks about everyone can be great because anybody can serve. And this is what he says today. He says, you don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You don't have to know Plato or Aristotle. You don't have to know Einstein's theory of relatively, relativity. You don't have to know the second theory or degree of thermodynamics and physics. You only need a heart full of grace a soul generated by love. But here's the deal. That soul and that heart generated by love is not just something you conjure up on your own. right? I think this is where that quote falls short, that if we're going to understand what this actually means, it means that we have to have our hearts first changed by Christ. We have to constantly be abiding in Christ. This is not something we can just muscle up and do on our own. We have to have Christ. It's the only power that can generate this for you. A soul generated by love can only come from a heart that has been regenerated by God. So student, embrace what it is to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And at the very heart of what it means to follow in Jesus' footsteps, to see him for who he really is. 
to be prepared to suffer on behalf of his great name, and ultimately to serve other people in the same way that he served you, namely by giving his life as a ransom for many. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time with our students. Pray that you now do the work in their hearts that I myself am not able to do. So change them, transform them, help them to adopt and to embrace the mind of Christ that, Lord, seeks the good in others, that lays down their own pride, their own selfish ambitions, their own vain conceit, that they might consider others better than themselves and might see Jesus as more worthy than anything this world can offer them, any comfort, any position of authority, any prestige, knowing that, Lord, ultimately it's in your hands to decide how we are rewarded in the kingdom. But the reality is when we get to the kingdom, we're not going to care because we're going to be with you. And that, in and of itself, will be better than anything this world can offer us. So help us to believe that today, we would ask in Jesus' name. Amen.